Welcome to this new installment of Christianity Proper. We are uh, tackling what I'm going to call the temptation of tongues. If you've listened to all of the episodes or any of the episodes so far through the deception of more, um, you know that really thus far up to this point, uh, I've simply been trying to lay the groundwork scripturally, biblically, that we don't need more. I wanted to establish that first and foremost because I think that that is the most important thing that we can establish in this series. That more than anything, we need to be convinced that we don't need more. That we've been given all things, or all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Um, that we have the anointing. Um, that scripture is able to fully equip us for every good work to make us complete lacking nothing. If you have listened to the previous installments, you say, okay, Caleb, we've heard you say that at least a hundred times now. Good. If you're new to this, if this is your first time tuning into the deception of more, tuning into Christianity proper at all, uh, we thank you for listening. Um, and again, I believe that that is the most important thing to establish. Uh, this is this is not a series to say, well, I want to I want to bash people who think this way, or I want to uh, I want to attack this line of thinking. First and foremost, this is a series, just as all of the series or all of the podcasts in Christianity proper, to edify the saints, to point us to the Word, and to help us understand things biblically, so that we have a proper understanding of the faith, and that we can think biblically, that we can think scripturally through some of these topics that might be a little bit controversial or they might uh, they might be a topic that um, it does cause a lot of friction and a lot of disagreement. So I don't want to spend too much time uh, with a preamble here and making too many comments before we dive right in. In fact, if you have your Bibles with you or if you want to pull up the Bible on your phone as you listen to this, we're going to start in Acts 2. The only other comments I want to make um, <clears throat> by way of introduction is first and foremost, I do not want, it is not my aim to cause offense, to lay a stumbling block in front of anybody. That's not the goal here. Uh, it's not my goal to cast stones at anybody who uh, believes that speaking in tongues is still for today or that they themselves have a private prayer language or anything of that nature. That is not my goal. With a topic like this that people disagree on, that people have differing views on, yes, I understand that when you when you're list if you're taking time to listen to somebody that you disagree with, there's going to be some things that you hear that you might say, well, that offends me. I feel like he's attacking me, or I feel like that's against me. So I want to say at the beginning, at the outset, it's not my goal. I simply want all of us, myself included, you as a listener to look at the scriptures and to, to see, to ask ourselves, do, do we have a right understanding of scripture? Um, and yes, that applies to me as well. Uh, in case you were wondering, if you care to know this, uh, just over the past couple of weeks, I've read a couple of different books on the Holy Spirit and, and I've done some different studies and I've purposefully tried to read things from the other side of the fence, <clears throat> if you will, and do some research and, and hear the arguments uh, and to study these things out because I don't want to be misrepresenting scripture and I don't want to be misrepresenting God and his word 
uh, and, and I don't wish for you or anybody to be wrongly believing the word and wrongly representing God uh, and his word as well. So that's first and foremost. Second, I will say this. I want this to be plain and clear. This is not a salvation issue, meaning this. I don't take the stance and I don't believe that anybody should take the stance that if if somebody believes that speaking in tongues speaking in tongues is for today or that they themselves have a prayer language, well then they're not really saved, that they're not of the faith. It's not a salvation issue. <clears throat> it is an issue of rightly understanding things, seeing things for uh, what they truly are, and asking ourselves, even if you even if you are able to speak in tongues as you understand it, does it truly benefit your faith? Does it truly benefit your faith? I know that the argument is it benefits your faith, it strengthens you, but does it really? Does it help you understand scripture more? Does it help you understand God and his character more? Does it help you have a more firm, full understanding of Christ and the gospel and salvation? Or is it just something that just builds you up and makes you feel good or feel blessed? And we'll get to that in a moment. But um, my take, as always, is that if we're if we're wrongly understanding any portion of Scripture, if we're wrongly understanding any doctrine, that ultimately it's hindering. It is hindering our understanding of the faith. So it's hindering our faith, but it's also hindering our joy of salvation. It's also hindering our peace and our satisfaction in Christ because we're not actually resting resting our faith, the fullness of our faith in Christ. We're looking for something else which is, again, the deception of more, uh, these, these, these temptations to pursue experiences or moments. And a lot of times people end up placing their faith or placing their confidence in, I had a moment, I had an experience, rather than simply believing and trusting and resting their faith in Christ and his finished work uh, of redemption. So just two little disclaimers there. We'll go ahead and jump in. I'm going to be, attempt to be as simplistic as possible and literally just look at some scriptures and try to teach through some of these passages of scripture. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time going the route, uh, and these things are true, but I'm not gonna go the route of saying, oh, well, Mormons believe that they speak in tongues, uh, which they do. There's a, there's a tongues phenomenon <clears throat> in Mormonism, in, in Hinduism. Um, you can look it up. Uh, you can verify those things, but that's not how I'm going to try to get after it on this installment. Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time giving the historical evidences that there was a lot of there was a lot of pagan practice and even pagan practice that included um, ecstatic speaking, ecstatic tongue speaking in Corinth. I simply want us to look at the scriptures because I firmly believe that if we just look at what the scripture has to say in general, without even doing some of the historical work and, and looking around in modern days at all of the false religions that speak in tongues as well, we don't even have to go that route. Yes, all of that plays into it. But if we just simply look at the scripture, I think scripture is clear um, how we should actually understand tongues and um, how we should practice tongues today, and I'm, I'm using that language, um, but how we should understand it to be practiced or to be used 
today? Is it for us? Is it for a church service? Is it for the believer? Um, so let's dive in. Right out of the gate, I want to simply look at what tongues definitely is or what it was on the day of Pentecost. What tongues definitely was or or uh, what it is when we look at the day of Pentecost, because that's typically the first place that anybody will go to when the topic of tongues comes up. We'll say, okay, well, day of Pentecost. We know what happened on the day of Pentecost. So first and foremost, it was a sign. It was a wonder. It was a, it was a miraculous event. Uh, it was the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the sending of the Holy Spirit uh, by Jesus. And people spoke and others heard in their own native tongue or in their own language, but it was a sign, it was a wonder. So very simplistic place to, place to start. I don't think that anybody would deny even the most staunch cessationist who says, absolutely, they're not for today. Um, nobody would deny that the day of Pentecost included signs and wonders, signs and wonders. I'll add to that, that it was prophecy fulfilled. The day of Pentecost was prophecy fulfilled. So that's important because if something was prophecy fulfilled, then we need to, we should probably really understand what those prophecies were, what they included. And if they're fulfilled, what did they point to? And if they're fulfilled, are they continuing to be fulfilled? Like were they, uh, is there going to be multiple fulfillments of these prophecies or was it a one-time thing, prophecy fulfilled, and then the church continues to grow uh, upon that foundation that was laid. So let's look at this real quick. Peter actually alludes to the prophet Joel uh, in his Pentecost sermon. So Acts chapter two, verse starting in verse 16, Peter says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So that's halfway through the quotation of Joel. I want to make a few comments there. In the Old Testament, the way that God spoke to his people was through the prophets. Uh, they had their time of judges and kings, but through the prophets... And in the Old Testament, it was common for there to be visions or dreams that God gave to his people to speak to them, to give them direction, to give them guidance. But here's one thing that um, that is definitely true. And this is where uh, the difference or the shift takes place. In the Old Testament, what didn't happen was that every single person got direct knowledge or revelation, if you will, but not every single person had access to the knowledge or the wisdom of God. There had to be a mediator. There was that prophet who told the people, thus saith the Lord, uh, this is what God has spoken. There was that person who had the dream or had the vision and then shared that dream or vision. And that's how God spoke. You can go all the way back to uh, the Exodus. Moses is the one who received the law from God. And then Moses spoke that to the people. Moses shared that with the people. But God was not giving direct messages or, or direct knowledge to all of the people. There was a mediator that that stood in the gap and that, that spoke and gave the word to the people. But now there's a shift. There's something different. In these last days, God will pour out his spirit on all flesh. 
male, female. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see vision. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they all will prophesy. And in the Old Testament, we know that there's a couple of different places. Uh, Jeremiah, I believe, is one of them. It says that there won't be a need for somebody to say, know the Lord, for they, they all will know and they all will speak. And so that's an interesting note as well. And, and here we would look at this prophecy and say, okay, well, that definitely happened. Because in the upper room, there was around 120 people and they all spoke of the, of the power and the testimonies and the acts of God. So they were all prophesying because what did prophets do in the Old Testament? Prophets spoke the word of the Lord. So prophesying simply is speaking the word of the Lord. And yes, some prophecies included some uh, telling of things that would happen in the future. Um, but it's not as though prophecy was always like, oh, this thing is going to happen. And sometimes prophecy was simply, thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord has said. This is what God commands you to do. And that definitely happened on the day of Pentecost. So now we pick it up in verse 19. I will show wonders in the heavens above and in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now that is what I would say very strongly. That is the, the main point of the entire prophecy. When the day of the Lord comes, when the last days are inaugurated, when the spirit comes for the first time ever, it, it will become common knowledge that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That, like this is, we could look at this and we could say, okay, in all of scripture, this is a first. We know that it was prophesied, but now it is here. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God's people isn't going to be just ethnic Israel anymore. It's going to be Gentiles, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, male, female, all people, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And these signs and these wonders that inaugurate the last days or inaugurate um, this outpouring of the spirit stand to prove, this proves, hey, look, it's happening. It's here. The last days are here. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we see that at the day of Pentecost, the spirit was poured out on all flesh all those who were in the upper room, all those who were gathered there, there was no distinction. They all received the spirit. And we know that's still true today. It doesn't matter if it's somebody here in America, somebody in Africa, somebody in Australia, somebody in Asia. Doesn't matter your skin color. Doesn't matter your background. None of that matters. All who believe will be saved and all who believe receive the spirit. We're sealed with the spirit of God. When we believe, Ephesians chapter one, we're sealed with the spirit of God. And we're all made to drink of the same spirit. And there's there's one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, as Ephesians 4 says. So we say, yeah, that happened. Prophecy fulfilled. And it's still the same today. All people who believe receive the spirit. And we are, we are able, all of us, to prophesy. We are all able to speak the word of God to others because we have his word and we can declare that word and we can share that truth and share that word with all people everywhere. So what about Isaiah? 
Isaiah 28 is actually referenced in 1 Corinthians 14, which we're going to get there a little bit later. But um, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that tongues is a sign for non-believers, and that, again, we're going to get there later, uh, but I want to go ahead and, and put this out here that because it is a fulfillment of prophecy. God told his people uh, by people of a foreign tongue or a strange tongue, I will speak to you and you still won't believe. You still won't believe. And Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians 14 that, hey, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be foolish. Tongues is a sign for non-believers. It's a sign for non-believers. So that was a prophecy fulfilled because in spite of this event happening, uh, in spite of these these foreign languages being spoken, the, these tongues being being spoken, there were many who still did not believe. And so this was a prophecy fulfilled. And then, I don't really know if you could say that this was a specific prophecy, but I do want to bring your attention to Acts chapter one, the very beginning of Acts. Uh, we'll pick it up in verse six, at the ascension of Christ. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. But I want us to focus on what Jesus said there. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, day of Pentecost, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and then to the end of the earth. Now, what I want to draw out of that and what I believe is very interesting, if you were to read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter two, the spirit falls, they speak in tongues. And we're told as well that there were men who were uh, simply uh, of Judea there, but that's um, at Jerusalem. And so the spirit fell at Jerusalem and uh, Judea is represented there. Jerusalem, of course, is in the, the Judean area. And then in Acts chapter eight, men of Samaria believe and the apostles lay their hands upon them and they receive the spirit and they speak in tongues. And then in Acts chapter 10, Peter receives his vision and the Gentiles, he shares the, he shares the gospel, the, the vision that God gave him with the Gentiles and the spirit falls upon the Gentiles, which represents the ends of the earth. And so Jesus says in Acts chapter one, you're gonna be my witnesses. Once you receive the power of the spirit, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And before we even get to the end of Acts, just when we get 10 chapters into Acts, proof of that, proof that the spirit, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and they will receive the spirit. Jerusalem, the spirit failed, people spoke in tongues. So beyond a shadow of a doubt, oh, the gospel is for the people here. Those who believe receive the spirit. In Samaria, same thing. Oh, the Samaritans, which what's interesting there is the Jewish people and the Samaritans, they didn't have a strong relationship. But here you have an event that beyond a shadow of a doubt, you say, oh, the gospel, the power of this gospel, the power of salvation, the power of the Holy Spirit is for the Samaritans or the Samaritans. Then you have Acts chapter 10, the Gentiles. 
And God gives this sign that beyond a shadow of a doubt, the same spirit is for the Gentiles. The power of the gospel, the power of salvation, the power of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit will indwell Gentiles, all who believe. That's a big deal. But that's directly connected to what Jesus said. You will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, people will believe. In all of Judea, people will believe. In Samaria, people will believe. In to the ends of the earth, Gentiles will believe. And all who believe will receive the Spirit. So we have prophecy fulfilled there. It was a sign and a miracle. I would also like to bring our attention to the fact that um, I like to say, in a way, it was the undoing of uh, the punishment at the Tower of Babel. If you go to Genesis, um, I believe Genesis 11, but we, but we know the account of the Tower of Babel. Uh, all of the people were together. They had one language and they came up with this plan. We're going to make a great city and we're going to have a tower in that city that reaches to the heavens. And God came down and uh, they didn't finish their project to say the least. But God comes down and one of the things that he does is he, he confuses the languages and then he scatters the people abroad. Uh, and, and that was as a, as a punishment and as a, as a buffer because yes, the comment was made that you know if they're able to do this, nothing will be withheld from them. But they were all one. They were all one and they were trying to reach heaven with this Tower of Babel. And God confuses their languages and separates them and divides them. And then shortly thereafter, that is when God chooses Abram and inaugurates his people, Israel. And then with his people, God actually communicates. God gives his word throughout the Old Testament, starting with Abraham. God speaks to his people. All of the other people on the earth, they don't get a direct revelation from God. They don't have a man who stands in the gap. They don't have prophets of God. Um, and that's significant because when we come to the day of Pentecost, what we see is all of these languages, all of these people who are in the different tribes and nations, they're hearing in their own language. So it's the undoing of Babel where there used to be confusion and division. All people now, they hear the gospel message. All who believe will be saved. And we know that in Christ Jesus, all are what? One, all are one in Christ Jesus. There's no distinction. There is no Jew and Greek. Um, there is no, <clears throat> you fill in You fill in the blank. You could use the list. Uh, in Acts chapter two, there were people, there were uh, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya. None of that mattered. In Christ, all are one. And they understand, right? So the gospel, the, the, the testimony of Christ, the power of the gospel, the, the testimony uh, of that and the, and the power and the work of God, all of these people were hearing in their own language. And then I would add to that, that once the comment was made that, oh, these people might just be drunk because this is crazy what's going on here. When Peter stands up and preaches prophesies a clear sermon. He's just speaking in the language that, that everyone will understand. He doesn't preach this sermon in tongues or anything like that. He's speaking plainly and everybody understands. 
And what happens at the end of that sermon? What must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized. And that day, three, about 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom that day. That day. 3,000. So people from all over were, were made one in Christ that day. And so we see an undoing of Babel. All are one in Christ Jesus. Um, people hearing in their own language, Peter preached that what all people would understand. So again, uh, I do just want to make that note. This is something that is definite about the day of Pentecost. The men speaking in tongues, nobody got saved from that. It was a sign. It was a wonder. It got the people talking. People were amazed. Like, what is this? We're hearing in our own language. And then there was a comment made. Well, these people are just drunk. But when the clear presentation of the, the proclamation of Christ, who he was, what he had done, and the fact that, as Peter said, you nailed him to the cross. Um, once that was given, that is when the cry came from the crowd, what must we do to be saved? What must we do to be saved? The power of salvation was in the gospel message, just like Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for in it, or it is the power of God unto salvation. Okay, so yes, tongues was a sign and a wonder, but what led to what must we do to be saved was the sermon, the presentation from Peter that was a clear proclamation of Christ and who he is. So I wanted to mention that as well. And lastly, what the day of Pentecost was. Now this one might blow your mind. The day of Pentecost was Pentecost. That was a joke. I know your mind's not blown. Of course it's Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. But what's the significance of that? In the Old Testament, what was Pentecost connected to? Why did they have the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits, all of these Jewish festivals and things? Pentecost is directly connected with the people of Israel after the Exodus going to Mount Sinai and Moses receiving the law, the word of God, and then relaying that to the people right? It's also of note that there was a, a cloud of smoke that, over, that overshadowed the mountain and there was thunderings and lightnings and the, the power of God was clearly on display. In the day of Pentecost, there was uh, a, a rushing wind, tongues of fire. Uh, it, was, it was obvious. The power of God was on display. And as Moses received the word of God, and relayed it or shared it with the people, we, we kind of have a mirroring of that on the day of Pentecost. The, 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 the Spirit falls, the power of the Holy Spirit comes, and then, and then people begin to prophesy and to testify and to proclaim all of these things. And people say, well, well we're, we're hearing it in our own language. We're hearing these testimonies um, we're hearing these words in our own language. And then that culminated with Peter getting up and giving a clear presentation. This is Christ, the one that you nailed to a tree, the one that you had crucified. He is the Christ and you are guilty. And you, well, that's the word of God coming to the people and all who believe will be saved. That's the word of God fulfilled. But the day of Pentecost, again, connected with, with Moses receiving the law, giving the law um, to the people. And, and what is interesting as well, when Moses 
came down from the mountain and we have the golden calf incident. 3,000 3, were killed that day after the golden calf incident in the book of Exodus. On the day of Pentecost, when the, the power of the Holy Spirit comes and the, the Spirit is poured out and, and men and women, all young men, old men, uh, even the daughters, the servants are prophesying and, and testifying in the power of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 are saved that day. So in the Old Testament, Moses goes up the mountain. He comes back down. That's not really a good day. 3,000 souls are taken. 3,000 are killed. In the New Testament, day of Pentecost, Jesus, Jesus ascends. So he goes up. And he sends the Spirit. He sends the Spirit. So Jesus ascends. The Word of God comes down. And 3,000 are saved and added to the kingdom that day. So these are the parallels. And these are the things that I don't care if you're Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Church of God, Church of Christ, whatever, you name it, non-denominational, whatever. These are the things that every person who professes faith in Jesus Christ should understand about the scriptures. The day of Pentecost, prophecy fulfilled. Yes, there were signs and wonders. What did they mean? What do they point to? What's the significance of them? The significance of the day of Pentecost isn't just that people spoke in tongues. It's the fact that the, the spirit of God was poured out upon all flesh. It's the fact that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That was something that was completely foreign in the Old Testament. Like, yes, there were some some prophecies about it, but in the mind of the Jewish person, absolutely not. We Jewish, ethnic Jews, we Jewish people, we are the people of God, just us. Paul actually says in the New Testament, the mystery, one of the great mysteries of the gospel is that it's for all people. It's Jews and Gentiles. We are all made one in Christ. Um, and we see that even Jesus himself says, you're gonna be witnesses for me here, here, even to the ends of the earth. And we see the spirit fall in these places. We, we see the spirit of God fall on the Samaritans. We see the spirit of God fall and indwell the power of the spirit indwell Gentiles. So beyond a shadow of a doubt, that confirms what Jesus said was true. You're gonna be my witnesses in all of these places. And people are going to believe. People are going um People are going to come to faith. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, you are going to know. We, we have these signs that we were given so that we could know. We don't have to wonder, can Gentiles really get saved? Are Gentiles really a part of the body of Christ? Are those Samaritans, are they really a part of the body of Christ? Because no Jewish person likes the Samaritans. Are they really a part of the body of Christ? But what did Peter say in... Uh, chapters 10 and 11. He actually uses the phrase, he says, the spirit fell on them or they received the spirit as we did as at the first. So like when it first happened, when that happened, he refers all the way back to the day of Pentecost. When that happened, that's the same thing that happened with the Gentiles. So you can't, there's no doubt about it. Like this is it. Also of note briefly, Peter has to refer all the way back to the day of Pentecost. So he doesn't say, just like happens all the time, just like it always happens. He says, just like as at the first. Um, so just a side note there. 
Uh, but um, it's the undoing of Babel, and it, it is Pentecost. Don't overlook the fact that the day of Pentecost is Pentecost. Why was Pentecost significant? Why did Pentecost matter? Uh, and again, the just that little tidbit about when Moses came down from the mountain, 3,000 men were killed. When the, On the day of Pentecost, when the power of the Spirit comes and Peter shares his sermon, 3,000 souls are saved and added to the kingdom. And so you see something like that, and it's just like, oh, we, we should be making a connection here. Like, we definitely don't need to be missing that, right? So <clears throat> those are some things that the day of Pentecost and, and tongues on the day of Pentecost definitely beyond a shadow of a doubt that's what it was that's what it is and those are the things that i think each and every time we read the book of acts when we revisit it that we should just be we should be humbled we should be amazed each and every time that wow in god's providence and in god's sovereignty he never intended to just save ethnic israel it was always his plan that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Like that was God's plan from the beginning because Christ will have preeminence in all things. So we, we rejoice in that, that through Christ, his sacrifice, his, his death, burial, and resurrection, through that, that is why we can still proclaim today all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We should rejoice in that each and every time we look at the book of Acts because we should say that day when the power of the Spirit came when the power of the spirit fell on those people that was it that was prophecy fulfilled and that was also jesus's words verified because he said if i go i will send a comforter if i go i will send the spirit and he did so we can have confidence we can rejoice in that and um i hope <laughs> if you're watching on facebook live i do hope that you can see uh i get excited talking about this stuff and so you can make jokes about it. I'm about to make a joke about it, but I hope that some people see, oh, hey, a Baptist can get kind of excited talking about the Holy Spirit. Like, yeah, we shouldn't be fearful of these things. We need to know what the Bible actually teaches. So here are some things that, yes, I would say, and just by way of reminder, these comments are not to offend anybody, not to try to hurt anybody. Uh, these comments are simply made in reference to my studies in scripture and to call all of our attention to the word and what the word has to say about these things. So yes, these are some things that I would say are false ideas or false teachings about tongues. So I, I didn't write these out in any particular order. Uh, so it's not like I'm going to list the most important and then I'm going to list the least important. But here's the list of things that I did write down. Number one, it's for every believer. Every believer should speak in tongues. That is... It's not in it's it's nowhere in scripture. In fact, in the book of Acts, just stay in Acts chapter two. You'll notice something in um, at the end of Acts chapter two when the people ask, "What must we do to be saved?" Um, in verse thirty six, it says, "Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. When with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3000 souls. So missing in those texts is that 
they were baptized, they spoke in tongues, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. Now, I know, uh, I've, I've, I think I've done enough research and I've talked to enough people to know that some would say, well, right, but it, he says, for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's Peter's way of saying that you're gonna receive the Spirit and you're gonna speak in tongues. But it doesn't say that. It's not there. It does say that they were baptized. It does, it does definitely pretty well say that they're saved. They're added to the family of God. They're added to the kingdom. But it doesn't say that all 3,000 of them spoke in tongues. It's not there. And I know that's very simplistic, but guys, we, we should read the Bible and take it for what it states. And there's other accounts. Now, I would say this. If that was the only account in the book of Acts that I could look at and say, well, it doesn't say they spoke in tongues, then yeah, that would be pretty weak. But what about the Ethiopian eunuch? He didn't speak in tongues. What about, what about Paul himself when the scales fell off? To his, and I know that Paul in Corinthians says that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but at the conversion of Saul, when the scales fell off his eyes, when he was baptized, what happens there? Um, what about, I wrote this down somewhere. Um, what about in Acts chapter uh, in Acts chapter four, when it says that the number of believers uh, came to about 5,000 because there was more people that believed uh, after, after the account of the lame beggar being healed by Peter and John. In Acts chapter four, it says, um, they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So even by Acts chapter four, we've already got accounts of people believing and being added to the kingdom. And at that point, there's not even mention of they were baptized and added to the kingdom. They believed and they were added to the kingdom. They were added that day uh, and the number came up to about 5,000 men, okay? So you can go to Acts, uh, Acts chapter nine through 13. You have account after account after account where there's not every single person or every single group of people getting saved, they speak in tongues. Now, the reason that I do think that that's important is you will talk to people who say, oh, well, that, that's the pattern in the book of Acts. Repent, be baptized, you're gonna speak in tongues. And yes, without question, there are a few places. I've already mentioned the, the bulk of them, Acts chapter two, Acts chapter eight, and Acts chapter 10, where without, without a question, without a doubt, those people believe or they were baptized or hands were laid on them and they spoke in tongues. But on the one hand, if they're going to make the argument, well, that's the pattern because we see that in the book of Acts, then I and anybody else can just as well make just as strong of an argument that, okay, well, that's not the pattern always. We also have a pattern where people believe and are added to the kingdom, where people believe and are baptized. It doesn't say they spoke in tongues, but they're clearly added to the kingdom. So it's not for everybody. To add to that, to be even more plain, to be even more specific, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul actually says, do all prophesy, do all speak in tongues, do all have the gift of healing, do all have the gift of miracles? So, and clearly that's that's a questioning that, that points to the fact that the answer is overwhelmingly no, not everybody speaks in tongues. Um, so it's not for all believers. Um, Sometimes this will be connected to a second baptism. I think this is another false idea or false teaching connected with tongues. Well, there's a second baptism. You get baptized, there's water baptism, but you've got to have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then you will speak in tongues. And that's kind of interconnected with what we were just talking about. 
But also I would add to that in Ephesians chapter four, uh, Paul states plainly that there's, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one baptism. So if Paul himself is saying there's one baptism, then we shouldn't buy into this idea that, oh, well, there's a second baptism. You're baptized with water, but then you're baptized with the spirit and that's when you speak in tongues. There's, there's one baptism. Uh, and again, you could look at, <clears throat> um, you, you look at the accounts in scripture that we have where people believe we're baptized, but we never hear that they speak in tongues. And then I would add to that again, we've really, we've got three different books of scripture where tongues are mentioned, uh, once or twice in Mark book of Acts, obviously. And then first Corinthians in the rest of the new Testament canon, tongues is not present even in passages where it says the fruits of the spirit are, well, that, I mean, that would be, that would be an easy one. That would be a go-to, right? The fruits of the spirit are, so fruit, the evidence that you actually have the Holy Spirit, the fruits are these things. And missing from that list is you spoke in tongues. It's not there. So even in passages where we clearly have like, this is what it looks like when you're walking in the spirit. This is what it looks like when you're bearing fruits of the spirit. This is what it looks like when you're uh, strengthened, when, you, when you're filled with the power of the spirit. We don't have account after account after account after account after account of people speaking in tongues. We're not told anywhere that speaking in tongues is an evidence that you now are filled with the spirit. We're not. In fact, in the book of Acts, just staying with Acts, you could read through Acts and you'll notice time and time again, it said they were filled with the power of the spirit or they were filled with the spirit. And a lot of times it says they were filled with the spirit and then a sermon is preached or they were filled with the spirit. And yeah, there might've been a sign or a miracle done, but guess what they did after that sign or the miracle? They testified of Christ and they proclaimed the gospel, right? So that's, if you wanna say, well, that what is it to be filled with the spirit? What is it to receive the spirit or, or be filled or... Um, I can't think of any other taglines at, at this particular moment, but what does that actually look like? It looks like being obedient to the word, having an understanding of scripture, accurately proclaiming and teaching the gospel and, and testifying of Jesus Christ. So second baptism, nope, there's one baptism, Ephesians chapter four, and we all drink of the same spirit. Like we all, we're all baptized. There's one baptism, first Corinthians 12, Paul says it again. There, there's one baptism. We're all baptized of the same spirit, one baptism uh, and one body of Christ. And we're all made to drink the same spirit. So we're all made to speak, to drink the same spirit, but not all speak in tongues. So again, just a, a plain reading and, and just going through what the scriptures actually say about tongues helps us understand some of the misunderstandings um, and, and where we kind of go astray with some of these other things. So uh, another thing that people say, well, speaking in tongues builds up the individual. It builds you up. Uh, and this is specifically, typically connected with prayer language. Like if you have a prayer language, it builds you up. It edifies you. In scripture, we're never told to focus on edifying ourselves. To make that an even stronger argument, when it comes to the spiritual gifts, which Anybody talking about tongues, again, Baptist, Methodist, charismatic, whatever. Anybody talking about tongues would say it's a spiritual gift. 
specifically when it comes to spiritual gifts, we don't use them to edify ourselves. We use them to edify the body. We use them to edify the other saints. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which we're going to, I know I'm referencing Corinthians a lot. We're going to go to Corinthians in a moment um, and, and go through that. So 1 Corinthians 14, um, it, it's a negative. It is a overwhelmingly, without a doubt, you look at 1 Corinthians 14, it is a negative. It is a bad thing to want to just build yourself up. Okay. And also for anybody who says, well, yeah, but it's praying in tongues. You're, just, you're praying in the spirit or whatever. Um, Paul says we, we need to pray with understanding. We don't need to just pray where our mind is unfruitful. We want our mind to be fruitful. So it, it's still, it's not good. So even then the argument gets debunked. Even then the argument gets defeated because, well, you're building yourself up. Why are you building yourself up if it's not fruitful? If you don't understand it, you're not building yourself up. Um, it can be, obviously these are connected. It can be a prayer language that's not taught anywhere in scripture. Nowhere in scripture are we told about prayer language or secret communication with God. When Jesus Christ himself taught us how to pray, he taught us the model prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, all the way down the list. Your will be done uh, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive our debtors. Um, the model prayer. When Jesus himself gave us instructions on how to pray, he didn't talk about a prayer language. When the apostles talked about how to pray, didn't talk about a prayer language. Why? It's not there. It's not there. People will say, well, it's praying in the spirit. Okay. If we were to take that hermeneutic or if we were to take that interpretive method, we're also told in scripture to walk in the spirit. We're told to kill sin by the power of the spirit. Um, we're told um, to obviously be filled with the spirit and things of that nature. But if we were to take that interpretive method, then anytime scripture says in the spirit, we would have to say, well, that means tongues. So walk in tongues. That doesn't make sense. You can't do that with anything else. Uh, walk in tongues. Build, uh, build yourself up in tongues, which there again, people will try to make that, uh, make that assumption uh, and give that teaching. But you can't use that with anything... You can't use that with anything else when it comes to the phrase in the spirit. We, we mortify sin or we, we, we kill sin in our lives by tongues. No, of course not. It's the power of the spirit. We're, we are sanctified in the spirit. So that's a poor interpretive method. And we wouldn't use that method if it weren't for preconceived notions that we were taught through a tradition of saying, oh, praying in the spirit means you're using your tongues language, your heavenly language. Um, and then again, with that, I mentioned this on the last installment, but for anyone, and it seems to me, it seems to me that this line of argumentation is lessening. It might not be, but it seems to me that it is. But for anyone who would still say, oh, well, prayer is like a secret communication between you and God that Satan can't hear or Satan can't interpret or... Um, Satan can't intercept or know what you're praying because it's a heavenly language or it's an angelic language. And by way of reminder, Satan, you could say, is from heaven. He was cast out, but he's from heaven. So he would know the heavenly language. 
And if it's an angelic language, he's an angel. He's a fallen angel, yes, but he's an angel, so he would understand that language. Furthermore, and, and to be even more simplistic and just biblical, what are we taught that prayer is in Scripture? It's communication with God. How are we instructed to communicate with God? By praying to him. We're never told to use a different language or pray in a tongue or anything else. When we pray, it is directly to God. Like there's no, there's no interference happening. We come boldly before the throne of grace. When we pray, it is a direct line to God. The veil has been torn. We're, there is no separation between the Holy of Holies or we don't need a priest to go in for us and make sacrifices for us or anything. We have a direct line to God. So there's a distinction that doesn't even need to be made. Oh, praying in your heavenly language is directly to God. Well, that's what prayer is anyway. So we don't need a heavenly language. Um, we go on. Um, <clears throat> tongues can be spoken in church, which we're gonna look at, we're gonna look at that in a moment. Because yes, as long as there's an interpreter uh, or a clear interpretation, then yeah, uh, Paul says in Corinthians, but he also says no more than three. And I, I will say this openly, I, I have not been to many services where people spoke in tongues. Uh, I've never even seen video clips of many, many services um, where people are speaking in tongues. But I will say this, the ones that I have seen uh, the ones that I have heard about, there's definitely more than three people speaking. And at that point, it doesn't even matter if there is an interpreter. No more than three. So if there is more than three, that church, that congregation is being disobedient to the word of God and they are out of bounds. They are outside the bounds of scripture and they're they're doing something that is sinful at that point because they're, they're taking God-ordained guidelines and throwing them out the window, ignoring them, disregarding them, okay? So we'll talk about that one more in a few moments as well. A sign or an evidence of the Spirit. So when somebody speaks in tongues, that's the sign, that's the proof they got the Holy Spirit. Well, that can't be the case because in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul clearly says it's a sign for non-believers. So nowhere in Scripture are we taught once again, nowhere in scripture are we taught that speaking in tongues is a proof or an evidence that you got the Holy Spirit. What we are told is that we're all made to drink of the same spirit, that there's one baptism, that we are all baptized in one spirit into the one body of Jesus Christ. Um, and we're told what the fruits of the spirit are. We are told that the spirit leads us into all truth. We're told that the Spirit sanctifies us. We're told that the Spirit seals us until we receive our promised inheritance. Um, we're told a few different things about the Scripture or, or about the Spirit in Scripture, and we're told these things plainly, that when He comes, He won't testify of Himself. He will only speak that which He has heard. And He will, he will always, to use a, a loose phrase here, He will always put the spotlight on Christ. The Spirit of God will never put the spotlight on Himself. The Spirit will always magnify Christ. That's an interesting point to make because a lot of times when it comes to speaking in tongues, people will say, watch the Spirit move. Look at what the Spirit can do. Look at The Spirit himself wouldn't even do that. The Spirit himself would not say, and I'm speaking loosely and I don't mean to be irreverent, but the Spirit himself would never be like, look what I'm doing. Look at me. The Spirit testifies of Christ. So even that in and of itself 
proves that we've taken these things in an unbiblical way because scripture clearly teaches that the spirit doesn't speak about himself or of his own accord or anything, that the spirit speaks only that which he has heard and the spirit brings into remembrance things that Christ has spoken and he leads us into all truth, so on and so forth. But one thing is for sure, we're never told in scripture that tongues is a sign or a proof that someone has truly received the spirit. It's not there. Um, and then um, I mentioned this earlier, but in the spirit, people will say, well, oh, when you're praying in tongues, that's what in the spirit means. And again, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. The spirit always puts the spotlight on Christ. I've mentioned that already. And that's John 14, John 16, and John 17. There's a good bit Jesus himself talking about what the spirit is going to do when the spirit comes. Okay. Um, also, we can't control the outpouring or the moving or the falling of the spirit. We don't control that. Look at the day of Pentecost. Jesus said, I will send him. You go to this place. Don't do anything until the power of the spirit comes to you. He sends the spirit. The spirit, move, the spirit gives gifts as he wills. Um, the spirit apportions those gifts as he sees fit. And the reason why I bring this up is a lot of times, We'll say that you, you might see a pastor or a preacher call people forward to receive the spirit. So I'm going to call you forward. And at this particular moment, I'm going to pray and the spirit's going to fall. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. There's no biblical support for that. Now you do have accounts where the apostles laid hands on people and then they spoke in tongues, but there's no there's no modern day apostles. And some of you might say, well, that's a whole nother can of worms, Caleb. And I'll just say another podcast for another time. But there are no apostles today. So even if you say, oh, well, it's, it's through the laying on of hands. Well, the apostles did that. And we have very limited accounts, one, maybe two, where they specifically laid hands on people and then they spoke in tongues. But they still, it's in those moments, they didn't say, well, I'm gonna pray real quick and I'm, I'm gonna... I'm going to ask the spirit to fall right now. I'm going, to, I'm going to ask for a fresh outpouring of the spirit right now. No, you don't see it. You do not see that exemplified from scripture. You don't see it there because it's not there. Um, and again, not everybody spoke in tongues, not even in the book of Acts, not even in the book of Acts. Um, again, the, the main thing to me, the biggest thing to me is that is how it's absent after Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls added, and we're not told that all 3,000 spoke in tongues. We're just told that they were, they believed, they were baptized, and then they were, they were added to the number of believers or added to the number of saints. Yeah, I think that's very important. I think that's very important. They did receive the Spirit because Peter told them, you will receive the Spirit, but they did not speak in tongues. So now, with all of that being said, let's go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 14. And uh, I'm sure if you're listening, you've already caught on to this by now, but uh, I will say that obviously we're 55 minutes in. We're just now getting to 1 Corinthians 15. And um, I think, I think, doesn't matter what I think, you're the listener, but I think I've done a pretty, pretty good job of trying to stick to my word and just consider these biblical truths and look at the text, look at scripture. And that's what we're going to continue to do. And clearly, 
I don't want to rush these things. And so if you need to click pause on this podcast and say, I'm going to finish this later, or if you need to log off of Facebook and get some rest and go and because you got to go to work tomorrow, you say, Hey, this video is still going to be on Facebook tomorrow. I'll pick it up at the one hour mark and I'll pick up where I left off. Then do that if you, whatever. But um, we're at we're at the 55 minute mark. And uh, I will say this, this episode, the podcast, it's going to be at least another 30 minutes. So I'm just going to let you know that um, because as you listen, I want you to really have time to listen. And hopefully, more importantly, I would love for you to actually have time to go to the text. And so um, I will just ask that if you don't have time to go to the text or you don't have time to look at these things, um, at least try to write them down. Uh, If you do have time to jot them down uh, or consider pressing pause and coming back and listening at a time where you do have uh, the freedom to open up the Bible and and look at these things for yourself. Um, So that's just my plea to you at the almost one hour mark. So we'll start in uh, 1 Corinthians 12. I said 1 Corinthians 14. I apologize. We're going to start 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning the spiritual gifts or concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. So that right there, if, if I'm reading the book of 1 Corinthians, that stands out to me because Paul is literally saying, you, you've got to remember the Corinthians, this is a, a church at Corinth. So these are believers at Corinth. And this apostle is telling them, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to not know about the spiritual gifts. I don't want you to not understand the spiritual gifts. I want you to understand. I want you to know these things. So that's important. That's encouraging. That lets me know as the reader, hey, God doesn't want me confused about this stuff. God doesn't want me uninformed about this stuff because God inspired Paul to pen these words to write this letter. And he inspired Paul to say, I don't want you to be uninformed. So that's encouraging for me. Verse two, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So just a couple of notes here before we dive in really to 1 Corinthians 14, which is where a lot of the meat is. Corinth was... I'm going to use the the phrase melting pot. Corinth was a melting pot of religion. There was lots of pagan religions there. So people who were being converted, people who were coming to the faith or professing faith in Christ, many of them had a strong pagan background. There was a lot of pagan practices prevalent in that area. That was good alliteration. And that was just me talking. Pagan practices prevalent. ADD moment. So, There's a lot of pagan stuff going on there. And yes, one of the things that pagans practiced was ecstatic speech, ecstatic utterances uh, that was mysterious or that was meant to be a heavenly language. Like that was something that the pagans do. And yes, it is something that pagans still do. You can look up the Kundalini spirit in in Hinduism and, and things connected with that. You can look, you can do your research and even Mormonism, there's, there's, uh, a group within Mormonism where there's ecstatic speech or speaking in tongues, even in Mormonism. Um, and so in, in pagan practices and in false religions still today, you have this phenomenon 
of speaking in tongues. That's not unique to Christianity. Uh, Christianity is not the only religion nowadays that claims to have speaking in tongues. Now, it is important to note that in these pagan practices, the speaking in tongues is typically, um, it's ecstatic utterances and, and sometimes it's unintelligible. Uh, and sometimes, I guess, sometimes it, it may be interpreted. People might say, oh, well, this is what's being said. But if you were to hear it, if you were just to walk up on somebody in these pagan practices and listen, you're not going to understand anything they're saying. You're, and you're not even going to recognize it as a human language. You're going to hear it and you're going to say, that's intelligible. That's unintelligible. Sorry. I, I can't make heads or tails of that at all. And so, yes, I do believe it is very important to make the point. In the book of Acts, people heard their own language. There was understanding. And again, when, when Peter spoke and preached his sermon... He preached it and everybody understood what he was saying. He, it was a clear gospel presentation, you could say. It was a clear testimony, proclamation of Christ and who he is and why they needed to repent and believe. But even when the, the tongues was going on, the speaking in tongues was going on, the group of people there said, now wait a minute, aren't all these people kind of from the same area? But we're hearing our own language that's crazy. That's kind of miraculous. And so there was an understanding. There was, but it was languages. People from different areas were hearing languages, real languages. So I would make the argument that in scripture, even the gift of tongues, it's not unintelligible. It's different human languages that was used to further the gospel, to be the witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Okay. So <clears throat> Paul, anyway, bring it, coming, coming back to Corinthians, bringing it back to Corinthians. Paul says, I don't want you uninformed. I don't want you uninformed. There were pagan practices in that area. People that were coming to, to faith in Christ at Corinth, um, they were coming out of pagan practices. And yes, they very well may have been trying to syncretize their pagan practices with Christianity and bringing those into the church. Because we know that the letter to the church at Corinth, the first letter to the church at Corinth is a letter that is mostly a reprimand or rebuke. Uh, but definitely, if you, if you think rebuke or reprimand is too strong of a word, it is most certainly correction after correction after correction after correction of stuff that is going on at the church at Corinth that has to be addressed. A man sleeping with his mother-in-law people suing other believers, people getting drunk uh, with communion wine, um, misusing the spiritual gifts. And by the way, clearly the church at Corinth, chapter one, Paul says, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift, but clearly beyond a shadow of a doubt, the church at Corinth was not a mature church. The church at Corinth was not walking in the light as he is in the light. There was a lot going on at the church at Corinth that was, bad news. So even though they were strong in the spiritual gifts, they weren't mature and they definitely were not honoring God with a good bit of their behavior. So that's worth noting as well. Um, but I don't want you to be uninformed. When you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Um, therefore, I want you to understand no one speaking in the spirit says Jesus is a curse and only 
in the Holy Spirit where they say Jesus is Lord. Now there's a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. And then at the end of that section, uh, so all the way to verse 11, verse 11 is when Paul says, all these gifts are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions or gives to each one individually as he wills. So the spirit of God, he is sovereign in how he apportions these gifts. Chapter 13, of course, is the love chapter, which oddly enough, when you really understand the context of chapter 13, I really wish people would stop using it at weddings. Uh, it's not a wedding passage. It's not a marriage passage. Uh, yes, it's a passage on love, but Paul's literally talking about the spiritual gifts and how to practice and use the spiritual gifts. And he talks about having love for the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we should think about this love when we're exercising these gifts or utilizing these gifts. So it's a love that's meant to be held within the body of believers. Um, I digress. So we have 13. And yes, in verse one of 13, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And some people will say that and say, well, Paul talks about speaking in the tongues of angels because he says, even if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if we read the rest of that passage, we'd see that he's kind of using um, exaggerated language, almost, uh, I guess, poetic language, perhaps, because speaking the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging symbols, it, or symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. So faith that moves mountains. If I have the full gift of prophecy, if I understand all of the mysteries and I have all the knowledge of God, well, that's not gonna happen. Like there's not a man alive that possesses any of that. And so he's, he's saying, even if you were a perfect Christian, even if you were the most complete Christian when it comes to the gifts, but you didn't have love, it's useless, it's worthless. So now 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 14. <clears throat> Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. That's encouraging as well. I don't want you to be uninformed. And now in 14, he says, pursue it. Pursue love and earnestly desire the gifts. That's a good thing. The gifts are good. They're not to be shot away from or, or anything of that nature. Especially that you may prophesy. And again, prophecy here. We live in a day and age now where people say, well, that, that man gave a prophecy or gave a word of God. And it's like, here's some things that are gonna happen. Or here's some things that's, Here's some things that God's gonna do in your life or, or what have you. But prophecy, simply put, what did the prophets do in the Old Testament? They spoke the word of God. If somebody is speaking the word of God, if somebody is giving a true and accurate testimony of God and his word and Christ and his finished work, they're prophesying. When faithful pastors stand in pulpits on Sundays and exposit the word of God, they're prophesying. They're speaking the word of God. So Paul here is saying, uh, desire especially that you may prophesy, that you may speak the word of God, that you may teach or exhort. And as we go through this, we're going to see clearly beyond a shadow of a doubt, the reason why prophecy is greater and the reason why Paul puts the emphasis on prophecy is this. It builds up the entire body. It strengthens the body of Christ. It edifies the body of Christ. 
it equips the body of Christ for the work of the ministry. When they hear and receive the word of the Lord, when they hear and receive instruction from God, that builds up everybody. Without a doubt, you don't have to wonder, is preaching the word, is teaching the word, uh, is teaching what God has said, is that beneficial for people? Without a shadow of a doubt, it is. It is the most beneficial, right? When one speaks, or when one who speaks in a tongue, speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Now this, some will take this and say, see, when you're speaking in tongues, it's mysteries in the spirit. You don't have to understand it. it it's, it's speech between you and God, and you're uttering mysteries. And we'll get to that in a moment. We'll get to that thought in a moment when Paul talks about praying in tongues. But this right here isn't even talking about that. This is speaking in tongues. So if, so, if, if someone speaks in tongues, there has to be an interpreter. Has to be an interpreter. So what Paul is saying here is, if there's one who's speaking in a tongue, he speaks not to men, but to God, for nobody understands him. He utters mysteries in the spirit. Now, some people say, well, that's good. He's speaking to God. I would make the argument that given the context of all of chapter 14 and all of 1 Corinthians, the fact that Paul is making corrections, and he's in some cases, he's kind of sarcastically calling out the Corinthians for their behavior. Here, I would say that he's simply making the point that somebody who's speaking in a tongue, if there isn't an interpreter and there's nobody to understand, then to put it loosely, only God knows what he's saying. Only God knows what's coming out of that person's mouth. He's literally uttering mysteries. And in this day and age in, at Corinth, within the church and, and the pagan practices around them, there was what was called like these mystery cults or these knowledge cults that was like this mysterious knowledge uh, that only a select group of people had. And, and they would utter their mysteries. They would share these mysteries and, and uh, these were false religions, there were cults, it was pagan practices. So I would I would say that there there may be a connection there. And that's why Paul is saying you're uttering mysteries um, in the spirit. Uh, so I, I would say that it's not necessarily a good thing that he says you're speaking to God in that context. It could be that he's saying, when you do that, nobody understands you. Like literally only God knows what you're saying. It doesn't benefit anybody. And if you say, well, Caleb, where do you get that? That it doesn't benefit anybody, that uh, it's not good that nobody else can understand you. Let's keep reading. On the other hand, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and, con and consolation. So one who prophesies builds people up, edifies, strengthens the body. Compare and contrast that with somebody who's speaking in a tongue. Nobody understands them except God. Only God knows what's being said. He's uttering mysteries and only God can interpret those mysteries. Nobody is being built up. Nobody's being edified because he's speaking into the air. You say, well, now wait a minute. He's speaking into the air. It just said he's speaking to God. Let's keep reading. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. We'll come back to that one. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more that you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. 
So what is the key? What is the main focus? What is Paul's main point here? We should want the body of Christ to be built up. Our concern should not be, I want to be built up. I want to edify myself. Our concern should be, I want my brothers and sisters in Christ to be edified. I want the entire body of Christ to be built up. I'm going to consider others more highly than I consider myself. I'm going to esteem others more highly than I esteem myself. That's the point that he's making here. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So if I come to you speaking in a tongue, how will it benefit you unless I give you something that you can actually understand? So he still made prophecy builds up. Prophecy is good. Prophecy edifies. Tongues not really doing anything. Doesn't edify, doesn't build up. Nobody can understand it. He's contrasting the two and he's making a point. Tongues is not where it's at. Tongues is not where it's at. And he does, people say, oh, but he says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. Yes, absolutely. He does say that. But he also says much more that you would prophesy. So if we were to write a list and say, what are some of the greatest gifts that we ought to be pursuing? Tongues would be at the bottom. Prophecy, be up there at the top. Tongues, down at the bottom. But how is tongues treated today, mainly among charismatic circles, Pentecostal circles, but even you also, again, this, this is not a podcast about denominations. This is the entire body of Christ and uh, trying to compel people to go to the word. So you'll, you'll meet Baptist, Methodist, people of different denominations, non-denominational people that they'll say, well, I've been, I've been asking for the gift of tongues or I've been trying to, I've been trying to get my prayer language. Why? Why? Why are we pursuing that gift? The, the gift of tongues is prominent. We actually tell people the gift of tongues, speaking in tongues, that's a proof that you have the Holy Spirit. You see how that's disjointed from what the scriptures actually teach. Let's continue. Verse seven. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. So which one is it? Speaking mysteries to God or speaking into the air? I would say both. Paul connects both of those things. If you're speaking in a tongue and nobody's there to interpret, nobody knows what's being said, only God knows what you're saying. Only God can interpret that mystery. Because what you're actually doing is you're just speaking into the air. It's unintelligible. It doesn't benefit anybody. And that's not what we're called to do. Spiritual gifts are not for personal gain, personal edification. Spiritual gifts are for the building up and the edification of the body, not the individual. So there was something up here that I said we would come back to. Verse four. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Some people will look at that and say, well, see, speaking a tongue, you're building up yourself. That's a good thing. 
It's not a good thing. What has Paul been comparing and contrasting this whole time? Prophesying builds up. Prophesying is great. Prophesying is to be pursued more than tongues because prophecy edifies the entire church. And spiritual gifts aren't to edify self. Spiritual gifts are to edify the church. So by Paul saying, one who speaks in the tongue edifies himself, it's actually kind of a an insult. Like, stop focusing on that. Stop focusing on yourself. Stop trying to build yourself up and focus on others. Focus on the body. And you may say, well, Caleb, aren't we told in Scripture to to build ourselves up in the most holy faith? Aren't we told in scriptures uh, in Scripture to to build our faith and increase our faith? And we are to be filled with the Spirit. So that kind of sounds like edifying ourselves. Yes, we are told to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. We are told to be strong in the faith. We are told to increase and grow in the knowledge of the faith, knowledge of the faith, and the knowledge of Christ our Lord. That's how we edify ourselves. That's how we build ourselves up. But we're part of the body of Christ. So when I say, well, that edified me, that helped me. If it was truly edifying to me, then it's going to be edifying to the rest of the body by default because we're all part and parcel of the same body, the one body of Christ. So I shouldn't be interested in stuff that just makes me feel better, that just makes me feel stronger, that just helps me. Um, I should be interested in things that build up the body and build up everybody else, which is why prophecy has the greater significance. Because when you speak plainly in a language that everybody understands, in a language that can be understood, then people can say, oh, I understand. Oh, I just increased in my knowledge of the faith because I can understand what you're saying. If you speak in a tongue, you're just speaking into the air. You're not helping anybody. It doesn't benefit anybody unless there's an interpreter. So why is that so so significant? Because the interpreter makes it go from speaking into the air to, oh, now everybody can understand. So you're not speaking into the air. You're just speaking a language that I didn't understand, but the interpreter came in. Now I understand and we're all edified. So to take this verse and say, well, the one who speaks in the tongue builds builds up himself. That's a good thing. No, it's not. Look at the context. Paul is clearly saying the focus should not be on yourself. The focus needs to be on the entire body. And that's going to be made even more clear as we continue reading. He talked about the bugle, the harp. If it doesn't give distinct notes, if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, people won't get ready for battle. People won't know what's being played with the musical instruments. So you yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is unintelligible, how will anybody know what is said? So he connects that with a bugle that makes an indistinct sound so that people won't get ready for battle. You know what that means? Defeat is sure. He compares it to harps and other instruments being played that they don't play distinct notes so nobody knows what's being played. You know what that means? Confusion, chaos. Nobody knows what's going on. I know that there's music. I know there's supposed to be something here for me to enjoy, but I don't I don't get it. That just sounds like a bunch of ruckus. There's no distinct notes. I can't understand anything. When we speak in tongues, that's what he compares it to. It's unintelligible. How can anybody hear that and know what is said? It's like you're speaking into the air. There are doubtless, and here we go, there are doubtless many different languages 
in the world. And none of them is without meaning. Paul himself, this is a clear sentence, a clear understanding or a clear glimpse of Paul's understanding of tongues. He literally just said, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none of them are without meaning. Without a doubt, there are many different languages in the world. What is Paul connecting tongues to? Known languages of the world. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So Paul says, look, I get it. I understand you guys want the gifts of the spirit. You guys want to be strong in the gifts of the spirit. And he doesn't say, stop it, cut it out. Don't do that. Okay. What he says is this, since you are zealous, since you are ready to excel in the gifts of the spirit, do this, make this your number one priority. Strive to excel in building up the church. Now go back up to what he said. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. Clearly, without a doubt, that is a bad thing. Strive to excel in building up the church. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies builds up the church. Strive to excel in what? building up the church. Continue reading. Therefore, therefore, because of what was just said, anytime you see a therefore, we've got to ask ourselves what the therefore is there for. So therefore, because of everything that was just said, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Okay? So that he may interpret. He speaks in tongues that he may interpret. Why? So that it'll edify and build up everybody else. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So here you go again. Oh, pray in a tongue. Pray in a tongue. I want to ask a question here. Is Paul talking about private prayer here in this passage? Here's why that's my question. People will say, I have a private prayer language. It's between me and God. When I pray in my private prayer language, it edifies me. We've already talked about how edifying yourself is not what we need to be focused on. That's a bad thing. We've also made mention earlier that private prayer language is not really taught in scripture, but let's just go with that for a minute. Private prayer languages, and people will reference 1 Corinthians. Paul talks about praying in tongues. Paul talks about praying with his or in the spirit. So that's an example of praying in the spirit, which means I'm praying with my secret language. It's between me and God. So let's read this. Is Paul talking about private prayer here? I'll go ahead and make one point. In verse 12, he said, with yourself. So with yourselves. Well, that kind of insinuates when you come together, when you worship together with yourselves, Strive to excel in building up the church. Then he says, therefore, if you speak in it, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he he's able to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, 
My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit and I will pray with my mind also. So notice Paul doesn't say, it's okay to pray without understanding sometimes. No, he says, so what will I do? If I'm praying in a tongue and I don't understand, my mind is unfruitful. What will I do? I'll pray with my mind and with understanding. How do we do that? Speak a language that you know. Speak a language that you know. Or else pray that you can interpret. But again, keep that question in mind. Is Paul talking about private prayer here? Let's continue. I will pray with my spirit, but I will also, or I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. It's not a good thing to disengage your mind. It's not a good thing to disconnect your mind. It's not a good thing to just start, just start moving your mouth and making noises and then the spirit will take over and you'll start speaking in tongues. No, you pray with your mind and understanding as well. You sing with your mind and understanding as well. Otherwise, here we go. If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? You may be giving well or giving thanks well enough, but the other person isn't being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Is he talking about private prayer here? No, he's talking about a church service, if you will. He's talking about in church. If I pray in a tongue, if I sing, if I give thanks, what about the person who's an outsider? What about somebody who hears these things? How will they benefit from it? How will they know what is being said? So it seems in this context that he's talking about prayer and singing and giving thanks that other people are hearing because it's in the context of worship. It's in the context of the body of believers. So he's not talking about things that are done in private right here. When you have a church service, is there prayers that are offered up? Yeah. Is there singing? Oh yeah. Is there thanksgiving that is offered up? Yeah. Sounds like a church service, right? Prayers, singing, thanksgiving, yeah. Hmm. He's not talking about private prayer. So this can't be used to say, well, Paul says when I pray in a tongue, so praying in tongues is different than speaking in tongue. No, it's still the same gift of tongues. If somebody has the gift of tongues, they could pray in that tongue. They could preach in that tongue. I guess you could say they could, uh, they could proclaim in that tongue. And so it's not, well, there's tongues, prayer language, and then there's tongues uh, when you get baptized in the spirit for the first time. And then there's the gift of tongues like you can speak in tongues whenever. No, it, it's all the gift of tongues. There's not different um, capacities or different offices within this one gift. It's the gift of tongues. And Paul is talking about how to use that gift within the body of Christ. It's not a private prayer language. You can't use that passage for that. You Well, you can, obviously people do it. We ought not use that passage to support private prayer languages or anything of that nature. And again, that section, he ends with the same thing. 
I would rather speak five words that are intelligible. I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others rather than speaking 10,000 words in a tongue. Now that's a pretty, 10,000, that was about the biggest number they could come up with back then. So I would, I would rather speak five words that are understandable rather than speaking as many words as I possibly could in a tongue. So again, Paul continues with tongues down here, prophecy and instruction up here. Tongues down here, edifying the body up here over and over and over again. Now we come to, to verse 20. <clears throat> Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. Brief comment there. It seems to be that he is using the idea of children or infants when it comes to understanding, when it comes to knowledge. So children and especially infinite, infinites, it is kind of late guys, I'm sorry. Children or especially infants would be fairly ignorant of lots of stuff because they're still growing up. They're still learning about life. They're learning about everything. So notice what he says. Don't be children in your thinking. Don't be childish. Don't be foolish. Don't be unlearned, right? But then he uses it, be infants in evil. So hey, if there's something that you need to be ignorant about or need to be unfamiliar with, be infants in evil. Be so far separated from evil, removed from evil, that you're unfamiliar with it, that you don't understand it, you don't comprehend it, right? That you're, you're an infant in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. Compare this with chapter 12. I don't want you to be ignorant or uh, I don't want you to not know things when it comes to the spiritual gifts. I want you to understand the spiritual gifts gifts. I don't want you uninformed. I want you informed. So don't be childish in your thinking. Be mature in your thinking. So that we would say, well, this is important. Paul said, be mature. Think through this. Understand this. So what point is Paul about to make? In the law, it is written. Oh, what? He's pointing them back to scripture. Wow. So Paul says, hey, important point coming up. Don't be children. Be mature in your thinking. I'm about to remind you of something. In the law, it is written. Okay, this is the word of God. What has God said? He's talking to us about the spiritual gifts and he's referring us back to a passage of scripture. What is he gonna say? This is important. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Why would Paul bring that up when it comes to the spiritual gifts? And why would Paul bring that up when it comes to tongues? Hmm. Good thing he doesn't stop writing. In verse 22, thus, therefore, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but believers. Tongues cannot simultaneously be, it's prophecy fulfilled, talked about that an hour and a half ago, prophecy fulfilled, 
And it's a sign, prophecy fulfilled. One of those prophecies that was fulfilled was that tongues is a sign for non-believers. Specifically, had a little stroke there. Specifically, a sign for non-believing Israel. Why would Paul mention that? Tongues is not this sign that you're like a super Christian. Tongues is not a sign that you have like this special gift or this special anointing that is greater than the other gifts or more important than the other gifts. It's certainly not a sign that you've actually received the Spirit because tongues can't simultaneously be a sign for unbelievers and also be a sign for believers that they actually got the Spirit. Those two things are at odds with one another. It does not add up. Biblically, it doesn't compute. One of the reasons that we shouldn't get caught up with this temptation to speak in tongues is that it's a sign for non-believers. It's not a sign for believers. So I would ask another question. How is tongues typically promoted today for the believer? It's not promoted It's not promoted as a sign for non-believers. It's promoted as a sign or a gift for believers because it increases your faith. It makes you a stronger Christian. It's this special weapon that God has given us to pray in the spirit so that we can be edified and we can grow. No, it's not. None of that is true because you can't back it up with scripture. So you say, okay, Caleb, well, if that's not true, then what what is tongues for? It was a sign, it was a wonder. It was proof that the Spirit had come. It verified Jesus' word that he would send the comforter, he would send the Spirit. Done. Check. It's prophecy fulfilled. Joel, Isaiah, and even Jesus, what he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. The Spirit fell in Jerusalem. There were people from all over Judea there. The Spirit came to the Samaritan believers or in Samaria and the Spirit came and fell upon the Gentiles, so people to the ends of the earth. Check. Sign for unbelievers. To my people, to this people, I will speak with strange tongue, foreign tongue, and even then, many of you will not believe. Check. Even still today, many uh, Jewish people don't believe and reject Christ as the Messiah. Sign for unbelievers. This is where I will insert this. I am not dead set on the fact that tongues, biblically speaking, tongues could never happen today. Uh, And for example, if I were to, let's just say that I, tomorrow, that I just have a strong conviction that me me and my family need to start preparing Uh, to go to Russia to be missionaries. And um, we don't quite have time to fit in language classes and learn the language. But let's just say we get there and I'm doing my best to communicate with some of the people that may already be there. Let's just say we have a a ministry partner and we go there to Russia. And I'm speaking with, with him, somebody who also knows English, and we're talking about the gospel and everything else. And I'm talking and I clearly don't know Russian, but all of a sudden people start looking at me funny. And I look at them and I ask the guy like, what's going on? What are they, what are they saying? And they tell him, because he can interpret Russian and English. 
they tell him, and then he tells me, they're understanding everything that you're saying right now. And then I preach a sermon in English because I don't know Russian. But all of those Russian people who don't speak English understand. I'm, I'm not to the point where I say stuff like that can't happen today. If I hear a testimony like that, which I have, I've heard different testimonies from missionaries, not in person, but I like to watch clips on YouTube and, and stuff like that. And so I've heard testimonies. People say, we went to this area, didn't know the language, but all of a sudden, like this happened, this happened. And then we were told, we understand what you're saying. And you were, you were sharing the power of God. You were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, I hear something like that, me personally. And I'm like, praise the Lord. That The gift of tongues, it's for non-believers. It's for non-believers so that they can hear the testimony of Christ in their own language. I'm not, a, I'm not against that happening today. I'm not opposed to that happening today because I, if I hear something like that, I would say, well, that fits the bill of biblical tongues. Like that's what it is, a sign for unbelievers. But even that doesn't really catch what Paul is saying here and, and within this prophecy. It's a sign for unbelievers. It's a sign of judgment. It's a sign of judgment that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, which to the, to the Israelites would be like a, God has left us and gone to the Gentiles, gone to anybody and everybody, the dogs of the world, right? So there's that. And then he says in verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? I, I don't mean offense with that chuckle. I just, I'm sorry, but I relate to that. When I see some of these videos or I watch some of these church services where people are speaking in tongues, I'm sorry. It, in some cases, it looks like they are out of their minds. But in worse cases, I would actually say they look like they're demon possessed. I've seen videos of people writhing on the floor in pain, screaming. That is not of God. In fact, when you read scripture, nowhere in scripture will you, will you see where the spirit of God filled someone or fell on someone and they writhed in pain and screamed and moaned and groaned. But you will see accounts of people who were demon possessed that writhed and were harming themselves and screamed, you will see testimonies and accounts of that in scripture. That's food for thought as well. But if all prophesy, so now we're talking about non-believers. We're talking about non-believers. If an outsider or a non-believer comes in, guess what? If you're speaking in tongues, he thinks you're crazy. So like I said, even then, well, oh, it's a, it's a sign for non-believers. So yeah, but even that doesn't really get to what Paul's saying here because he immediately follows that by saying, if a non-believer wanders into the service and hears you speaking in tongues, they're gonna think you're crazy. But if a non-believer wanders into the service and hears you prophesying and speaking clearly and speaking of Christ and speaking of the word of God, then what does it say? Then he is convicted by all and he is called to account by all 
The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Oh, I thought speaking in tongues was a sign that God was truly among people. I thought speaking in tongues was the sign that the Spirit's really moving. But this says if you're prophesying, the secrets of the heart will be revealed. He'll be convicted. He'll fall on his face and he will worship and declare that God is really among you because you were prophesying, because you were teaching, because you were instructing. That will cause the non-believer to fall on his face and worship and say, God is here. Not speaking in tongues. It's not the speaking in tongues. What then, brothers, when you come together, we're, we're, we're just going through chapter 14, we'll be done. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So here I will say this, biblically speaking, yes, when Paul talks about in the church service, orderly worship, he leaves room for a tongue. But biblically speaking, what has Paul taught that a tongue is? A language. And every language has a benefit, has, a, has an understanding, but if we don't understand it, then it doesn't have a benefit. Uh, every language uh, has a meaning, but if we don't know the meaning, it's not beneficial. But yes, without question, Paul leaves room here for a tongue and an interpretation. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three. And each one in turn. So here's another thing. Not everybody speaks in tongues at the same time. To be more specific, even if it's only three people, because that's the most that's allowed, not all three people speak in tongues at the same time. Each in turn. So what of these services where people get called down to the altar, baptized in the spirit, and everybody's speaking in tongues? It's definitely more than three, and they're all speaking at the same time, and there's probably not an interpreter for every single one of the people who's speaking. What of these services of the charismatic ilk where the preacher might be up there preaching, but people in the pews are muttering, and I don't mean, I'm using that as a biblical uttering or, or, or muttering words in tongues as he's preaching, and there's definitely more than three. Or even if there is only two or three, they're, they're talking at the same time. It's unbiblical. It's wrong. Each in order or each in turn and let someone interpret. If there's no interpreter, even if it's only one person, if there's no interpreter in the church service, it's not biblically faithful. It's rebellion against God's order of worship. So even if you want to leave room and say, Caleb, I still kind of think that tongues is for today. And Caleb, you yourself said it's not a salvation issue. And I just, I really feel like tongues is still for today. And my mind isn't changed yet. And I'm just not convinced. Then I would simply say to you, okay, if that's where you're at right now, then I would simply beg of you when you go to whatever church that you attend or whenever you visit a church, if they're claiming to speak in tongues, Hold them biblically accountable. If it's more than two or three, leave. And I mean that, leave. It's not biblical. It's not a biblical church. They are not submitted to the word of God. If it's only two or three, but even if they're all speaking at the same time, 
and nobody has a problem with it, they're not following the guidelines. If it's only two or three, but nobody interprets, leave. They're not following the guidelines. Hold them biblically accountable. I'm not going to try to sit here and change everybody's mind. I know that I can't do that. Only the word of God can do that. So if you're listening to this and you're like, Caleb, I'm not mad at you. I just don't agree with you. Then at the very least, I would say, then wherever you attend church or wherever you may visit a church, hold the church and hold that pastor biblically accountable. Paul gives clear instruction for if people are going to use a tongue in church, which again, me, clearly I would say, he's talking about real languages. It's not unintelligible gibberish. But if that's where you're at right now and you say, I think what, they, what they're doing really is tongues and everything, hold them biblically accountable. Two or at most three, each in turn, not at the same time, and it has to be interpreted. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So pairing that with what he said earlier, if anyone speaks in a tongue, he speaks to God. So only God knows what he's saying. So if there's not an interpreter, keep silent. Like, that's pretty clear. Keep silent. Keep silent. Well, I, I just really feel a strong desire. I've got to speak out. I've got to. Mm -mm. No interpreter, keep silent. Let two or three prophets speak. So even the two or three still with the prophets as well. And let the others weigh what is said. So test the spirit, see whether or not they're of God. The prophet, um, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. You can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. So again, tying that back in, edifying the body, building up the body. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So test the spirits to see whether or not they're of God. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. There's not supposed to be confusion and chaos in church service. He is a God of peace. Then he goes on, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. You say, well, I don't like that. This is an episode on tongues, but Caleb, you just read those verses. I really don't like that. Okay. Or was it from you or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So if anyone claims to be a prophet or if anybody claims to be something and he doesn't acknowledge that these things are true, he should be dismissed or he should be at the very least ignored, not acknowledged, ignore him, he's not of God. So the comment that I will make, I've made this comment previously, I'll make it tonight. Regardless of how you may feel about tongues, um, if, if the person that you're listening to, if they definitely have other unbiblical teachings and leanings, then there's a really good chance they're leading you astray with whatever the more is that they're tempting you with. So if they believe in and support and encourage female pastors or female elders, they're not in submission to scripture. They are going against scripture. If they support modern day prophets and apostles and stuff like that, they're going against scripture. And so if they're wrong in those areas, unashamedly wrong, like not willing to be corrected, 
then these words still stand. They don't need to be recognized. They're not true men of God because they're not submitted to the word of God. So they're not prophets. They're not teachers. They're not pastors because they don't understand the word of God. They're not, if they do understand it, they're not submitted to it. Within the church, meaning just women cannot teach or preach in the church. What about at home? Yes. What about out and about in the town? Can they tell people about Jesus? Can they teach the scriptures to people and tell people what the Bible says? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what about in the church? What's the difference in the church and being out of the church? What's the difference? Because God has given us guidelines for the order of worship. And in the church, women are not to have the authority over the man and women are to keep silent in the church. Does that mean perfectly silent? When it comes to teaching, when it comes to prophesying or things of that nature, yeah, they are to keep silent for sure. It's biblical. Um, so if you've got somebody that has false teachings in those areas, uh, people who teach things like God's going to make you wealthy, God's going to give you money if you tithe, um, the more you tithe, the more God will give you back. So just any false teaching, if they have other false teachings, then they're probably teaching you falsely about whatever you're listening to at the particular moment. That is something to consider. They're not to be recognized. Uh, my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy do not forbid speaking in tongues. So again, Paul leaves room there. Don't forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So these are all the comments that I wanted to make on tongues tonight. I wanted to look at this. I do know, I mentioned this in the last episode, I think, but there is a passage in Romans 8 um, that when we don't know what to pray as we ought, the Spirit makes utterances for us. Or no, the Spirit um, intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So just briefly, I guess by way of reminder here as well, I would say in that passage, the spirit is the one praying. The spirit is the one interceding. We don't know what to pray as we ought. And as the spirit intercedes, it's with groanings that are too deep for words or, or groanings that cannot be uttered. So our mouth isn't moving because the groanings are too deep. They can't be uttered. They can't be spoken. They can't be um, they can't be articulated in any way. It's the spirit interceding for us. So that is not a prayer language passage either. And it's not a passage of praying in the spirit or, or, or anything like that. It's literally saying, hey, when you don't know what to pray, when I don't know what to pray, the spirit is interceding for us. He's praying, he's interceding for us. Um, this is this is the longest episode I've ever recorded. I knew it would be long. I didn't want to rush it. If you've listened to this whole thing, kudos to you. You're the real MVP. Um, but this is this topic specifically is closely knit to the root of why I actually started the Deception of More series. So it is very important to me. I think it's very important for the church body. Tongues is something that is very misunderstood on, on either side of the fence. Um, and so tonight, I simply wanted to take a straightforward, let's look at some passages in Acts. Let's look at 1 Corinthians. Let's see what scripture says about it. And I, I tried my best not to give opinion or to give illustrations or to use sources that are extra biblical. I just wanted to look at the text because I firmly believe that when we just look at the text, Scripture's pretty clear of what tongues is for, what it was used for, how it fulfilled prophecy. Is it for today? I would say 
given everything that we look at, given the fact that it's not in the rest of the New Testament, no, I don't really think it's needed today. I don't think it's necessary. In the church, yes, when it comes to missionaries or or even if you run into somebody who's foreign, let's just say you go to Walmart and you run into somebody who's foreign and all of a sudden they can understand you. Cool, share the gospel. Like, may God be glorified in that. But tongues as a gift just for believers to use for themselves, to edify themselves, to prove that they have the spirit as a sign that somebody actually got filled with the spirit, things of that nature, absolutely not. It is not there at all. It is not there at all. So I knew this would be a long one. Um, And I pray that God has been glorified. I pray that you have been edified or at the very least been challenged to think through um, this topic a little bit further. Um, And as always, Christianity proper, proper doctrine, proper life, my aim, my hope, and my prayer is to edify the body, um, to strengthen the body by pointing them and pointing myself to the word. Issues like tongues and stuff like that, we might not ever get a perfect answer or a perfect understanding of it, but there's enough within scripture that a lot of these hard passages, we can understand them better than we're understanding them. And we certainly don't need to just listen to what other people are telling us, which applies to me too. Look at the text. Look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Look at the book of Acts. Um, Look at all of the passages in scripture that talk about tongues in any way, shape or form. You study them. You've heard, you've heard me kind of walk through them and go through it, but don't just take my word for it. Go to the text, go to the text, go to the text. Study the word to show yourself approved. Lastly, this is the deception of more series. Tongues is one of the biggest things that people will say, well, oh, have you spoken in tongues? Have you ever, have you ever received the spirit? Have you ever been baptized in the spirit? Um, have, you, have you gotten that uh, confirmation? There's more. Do you pray in a tongue? Have you gotten your prayer language yet? There's more. And what so often happens is that people will look to that, well, I spoke in tongues once or twice or I spoke in tongues, then I got a prayer language. And now I pray in my prayer language. Or, well, I speak in tongues and I pray over people in tongues or I, whatever. And they'll start to use that as a gauge of like, well, I know I'm saved and I know that I'm spiritual. I know that I'm right with God because I received the gift of tongues. First and foremost, that's not biblical. That's not what the gift of tongues is used for as a sign and a rank. In fact, if anything, tongues is at the bottom of the list of spiritual gifts that we should be pursuing. But also, this is why it's so important. If we are putting our faith, if we are putting our confidence, and if we are pursuing anything other than Christ, then we are on bad footing. We are on unsure ground. We're on a slippery slope. Folks, I cannot stress enough. Brothers and sisters in Christ, beloved, I cannot stress enough. Scripture clearly teaches us we have been given every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Scripture teaches us that that Scripture itself is able to make us wise to salvation and fully equip us for every good work that we are called to. We do not need more. When the more is things that are outside of Scripture, 
when the more is things that are misquoted or twisted from Scripture. But when the, when the more is something that actually takes our focus and attention off of Christ and it puts it on an experience or a moment, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that it's a false teaching. And really, it's, it's, the, it's the spirit of Antichrist because it's pointing you away from Christ. Please, if you have any questions, if you have comments, if you strongly disagree with any of this, please reach out in any way, shape, or form. Email properministries at gmail.com. Reach out to me on Facebook. My phone number is 912-339-4211. Please, um, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, please subscribe or follow us. Um, if, if you've been encouraged by this, if you thought that it was worth listening to, share it. That would be very encouraging for us. We would, we would love to know that, um, that it has been an encouragement and a blessing to you. But may God be glorified in all things and may the saints be edified through the study and the teaching and the proclamation and the understanding, the proper understanding of his word. Christianity proper, proper doctrine, proper life. Thank you guys so much for listening. We love you. We'll talk to you again soon. Have a great evening and truly may God be glorified in all things.